Open up your Bibles. We're going to be in Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. We're continuing this series in Luke called The Last Days of Jesus. The Last Days of Jesus, we're focusing in on the end of Luke, which is the climax of the story. And we do verse-by-verse preaching at our church, but I want to continue to encourage you, take time to sit down and just read the whole book of Luke. When you're studying the Bible, uh, we like to pick it apart verse by verse, but it's also good to just read the whole thing in one sitting. And what you're going to see is this uh, kind of important focus at the end of the book on the death and resurrection of Jesus, that he's inaugurated as king, ironically through his death, and then through his resurrection proves that he shares the throne with God himself. So the last days of Jesus focusing in on his death and resurrection as he comes into the city presenting himself as the true king. We're in chapters 19 through 24. This week we're in chapter 20 uh, and we're calling it Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. We're in Luke chapter 20 verses 19 through 21 4. So a big chunk of scripture here. We've got two stories, then a little saying by Jesus, and then two more stories. And they break up pretty nicely showing a, a unified whole of teaching the idea that Jesus is Lord. You can find this on page 879 if you want to grab one of those black Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to take that home. We we want you to have your own Bible that you can look at at the house. Um, My only son uh, would always wake up earlier than his sisters. So we have three kids. They're all grown up now. Uh, But when they were little, my son just always woke up earlier than the girls did. One time, they were staying at Grandma's house. We were out of town. Maybe we were at a conference or something. I don't even remember at this point. Years ago, he was probably 10. He has an older sister and a younger sister. They were staying at Grandma's house. And as, as normal, he was awake early when Grandma was up. Grandma had to run to the store, and the girls were still asleep. So she's like, all right, I'm just going to run to the store for a little bit. This is right down the street. Everything's fine. Here's my phone number. If there's a real emergency, you can call 911. I'm going to be gone for a little bit. But while I'm gone, Compton, you're in charge, okay? Compton, you're in charge. Take care of your sisters, all right? So she she passed the baton of kingship, of lordship, of protection to this 10-year-old boy. As soon as she leaves the house, my son decides, what good is lordship if I can't share it with everybody, Right? So he just jumps up and down on his sister's beds and he screams, wake up, wake up, I'm in charge, I'm in charge. And he wakes them up. He doesn't let them sleep. He wants them to know how in charge he really is. Now, now this is a, an illustration of what not to do when you're in charge, right? This is not the kind of lordship that Jesus presents. It, it's really more like the lordship of the other leaders that Jesus kept having conflict with, Right? They were puffing up their chest saying, I'm in charge, I'm in charge, look at me, look at me. They didn't really actually care about the good of the people they were serving. Just so you know, he's grown up and he's doing much better now. Okay, so (laughs) he matured out of that 10-year-old boy phase. Uh, Let's read the story here. We're going to start in Luke chapter 20, verse 19. I'm just going to read a couple of verses, then I'm going to jump ahead uh, because I want to get to all these verses through the morning, but I want to start with just some snapshots. So follow me, chapter 20, verse 19. Uh, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him, this is Jesus, at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So what parable? The parable we looked at last week. You can go back and check the recording if you missed that, or you can just look at the verses here. He told this parable about how the leaders of the vineyard of God 
we're rejecting God's authority. God's like, this is my vineyard. It should bear fruit. And he's trying to hold the leaders accountable. And the leaders keep killing the messengers that are sent to them. And so Jesus uh, is talking to these leaders and they know he's, he's saying, you're, you're the problem. That God is going to remove you from leadership if you continue to reject his authority and his son's authority. And so verse 20 says, they wanted him, uh, they, excuse me, they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So then we're going to skip ahead and I want to point out one little section in the middle of everything we're going to learn this morning, skipping ahead to verse 41. So skip down, big chunk. We'll come back to these other parts, but skip ahead to verse 41. But he, Jesus, said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Very important Old Testament text about the lordship of Christ. He's encouraging them to dig more. We'll come back to that. But this text, this word is about the lordship of Jesus. Jesus is coming into the city, offering himself as Lord. And we need to recognize that we have in us the same human problem that the religious leaders had at that time. And that's a resistance to the lordship of Jesus. We don't trust him. We want to push him away. And so I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit would be with us, that the Holy Spirit would help us to see that, that what these stories are teaching us is true. This is a testimony of who Jesus is and that we need him as Lord in our life. So let me pray. God, we pray that your Spirit would come and be among us so that what we do here would be a supernatural experience of, of hearing your voice through your word, that your Spirit would open us up to see your goodness, that you would renew our hearts and our minds in you, and that we would see that Jesus is Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, we're covering a lot of text here. The big idea is Jesus is Lord, and we'll see it uh, illustrated in three different ways. And kind of the structure of the text is that there will be two stories that are going to illustrate that Jesus can't be trapped. They're trying to catch him. They're trying to trap him, right? So first thing about his lordship Jesus can't be trapped. You just can't do that to Jesus, right? So that's establishing his lordship. And then the, the middle section is that kind of quirky, puzzling thing from Psalm 110 that he talks about, the last thing I read. And there we're going to see that Jesus is more than a human king. He's more than a human king. He's, he's prodding us to go dig in the scriptures and see that there's so much more to him than we thought. And then finally, with the last two stories we'll come to at the end, they also have kind of two stories saying the same thing. We'll see that Jesus sets the standards. Jesus sets the standards. Jesus is Lord. Okay, number one, Jesus is Lord and Jesus cannot be trapped. Jesus cannot be trapped. We'll see this in verses 19 through 40. There are going to be two traps set for him by competing parties. Uh, so there's really much, many more than two competing parties, but sometimes it's easier for our brains to reduce it down and compare it to our own culture. So you can kind of think of the Jewish factions of the day similar to our factions. We think of like conservative traditional type people and more liberal progressive type people, right? Same kind of factions in the Jewish culture. We don't want to make too much of that, right? 
Um, Jesus is something different altogether, right? But you got the traditional people trying to trap him in one way, and then you got the more liberal people that take the scriptures less seriously trying to trap him in another way. So two different traps, and the big idea is what? Jesus cannot be trapped, right? He can't be caught. Uh, So again, we go back to the beginning section. This is in verses 19 through 40, and I want to skip ahead to verse 21, the way they were trying to trap him and turn him over to the governor. Actually, I'll I'll go back to verse 20. Let's read verse 20. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They were not sincere. They're trying to trap him. They pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So this first group are people that wanted to see the governor catch him for treason or sedition, right? And this was the more anti-government group. This was the more uh, traditional conservative types that didn't like government. Sound sound familiar? We know some people are like that around here, right? Uh, Not all that uncommon in our culture as well. And so they think, okay, the people like him, but the people are on our side. The people are suspicious of the Roman government. And so we'll catch him saying something either for the government, and then the people won't like him, or against the government, and then we can get him in trouble with the government, right? So it's like we got him either way. So here's the trap that they laid for him. Verse 21, so they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but you truly teach the way of God. They're buttering him up, right? They don't really think this. They've been fighting him this whole book. Verse 22, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Should we, as the people of God, Bow to Caesar, give tribute to Caesar, honor Caesar, pay taxes to Caesar. Verse 23, but he perceived their craftiness. And he said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. Now, scholars point this one little step out that, that I almost missed the first few times I read this. But, but watch this, they, they are on the side of Caesar is bad, right? And we shouldn't submit to his rule, we should be independent. And so Jesus is like, all right, well, show me one of his coins. They just happen to have Caesar's coins in their pockets. It's a pretty important part of the story, right? Um, so he's like, okay, if you're so against Caesar, sh- show me some of Caesar's coins. And they're like, oh yeah, we've got them right here. So he's already trapped them back right there, right? They've got the coins of Caesar. If they're so against Roman power, why do they carry around Roman money, right? And so this this picture of the Jewish leaders being compromisers and being corrupt and caring about money just comes again and again throughout the Scripture. So he goes on. That's not the only thing. That's just like this minor point that I think is helpful. He's like, so whose picture is on the coin? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. This is what happens when people actually listen to what Jesus says. They're just like, they're stunned. They're stunned. Even people that hate Jesus are just like, whoa, I didn't expect that. And so here, His argument goes this way. He's like, well, look at the picture. Okay, it belongs to that guy whose face is on the coin. I have a picture. One of our our members is a coin collector. So he's got these ancient coins. And he was showing me this one the other day. This, This kind of tribute coin with Tiberius Caesar's picture on it. You can see 
the picture there. Um, if you can see the details well enough, he's got the Roman nose, which I think is really handsome. And <laughs> there's statements about the lordship of Caesar. It actually says things about him being the son of God. It's interesting. It says things about him being the chief priest of the people. That's interesting, right? Jesus doesn't get into all that, which would have been very offensive to them at the time, right? But he's like, hey, it's got his image, so it belongs to him, right? So the things that have the image of Caesar belong to Caesar. But what's the other side of what he's saying? He, he's being very simplistic about this, but, but read the rest of that phrase. Verse 25, he said to them, well, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So if your money has Caesar's picture, I guess that money belongs to Caesar. So the question we should ask is, what has the picture of God on it? Can you think about that biblically? Well, the Jews didn't, they didn't make pictures of God, right? They weren't supposed to. So, so what, is, what does the Bible say about the picture of God? Who or what is the image of God? Well, Jesus specifically, but more than that, humanity, right? He's saying, you are stamped with the image of God. You belong to God. Your heart belongs to God. Your life belongs to God. And so it's this beautiful way of him kind of swatting the secondary issue aside and pulling us into the primary issue, right? He like grabs us by the shirt and he's like, what's the real issue here? Like, are you, are you going to give your life to God or not? Are you going to see him as Lord or not? Let's look at the next section because very similar kind of thing here with the next trap. The next trap was set by the more liberal people and we need to be careful. Again, you know, we don't want to get political here, but He's talking here to uh, theologically liberal people. So theologically liberal means you don't take Scripture really seriously. You tend to see it more poetic, and you're like, um, I'm, I'm the one in charge, and I'll just kind of take what I like from the Scripture. I'll kind of pick and choose. That's kind of a very common modern American view of Scripture. And I'm not going to put myself under the authority of Scripture, but I'm going to pick and choose what I like. That, that would be called theological liberalism. Well, there was a party that was like that with the Jews. They were called the Sadducees. Uh, a lot of scholars think they were named after Zadok the priest. And so this was a priestly class of people who had the power of running the temple. And so they compromised a lot with Rome. They didn't believe in supernatural things, right? And so they were this other party. They were this other kind of group that had another worldview and they were surviving by saying, you know what, we're not sure about all the supernatural stuff. We don't really know if all the stuff about God is real, but we kind of just like the poetry of it, and we're going to run this religious temple, the center, right? So Sadducees, verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. They don't believe in the resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. This is called the, the law of leveret marriage. Um, and so this is so weird to us, right? Because like in our culture, we think uh, marriage is, is just for feeling good, right? Like that's kind of what we think marriage is about. Uh, romance movies, like waking up and your breath smells nice and just all those kind of images we have of marriage, you know, being with your best friend forever. And, uh, and many of us are thankful to have that kind of relationship. My wife is my best friend, Right. But in the ancient world, marriage was more than that, right? It wasn't just that. It wasn't just romance and best friend. It was like, it was like how you survived, how you 
propagated the species, right? Like it was multiplication and having children and setting up households. That's what it was about. And so they were under very strict command. Like if you married someone and the brother dies that was the one that married this woman, then the next brother in line has to marry her so that children can be had. Again, sounds really creepy to us, right? (laughs) Really creepy to us. But again, it's helpful to just get in the mindset of the ancient world and recognize marriage was more about children and family and the human race surviving than it was about our kind of romantic Hallmark movie pictures of marriage, right? Just different sort of definition of marriage. And so here's the law. They're supposed to take another, another brother if one brother died and there were no children. Now he goes on and he says, verse 29, now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. This is ridiculous. You're supposed to think this is ridiculous. And again, this is a mark of theological liberalism is saying, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take the weirdest, smallest, fractional, kind of odd situation, and I'm going to try to disprove the whole thing with this little minor confusing thing over here. Be careful. To, to be someone that trusts the authority of Scripture doesn't mean you have no questions about anything. It doesn't mean you never have doubts. It just means you're not making your doubts everything. And so the Sadducees are making the doubts everything. They're like, the doubt's the most important thing. And they're missing the whole story. They're missing the whole story. Be, be careful. It's good to ask questions. It's good to study. It's good to say, hey, this, this seems like a contradiction. Can you help me with this and, and pursue that? But they're just, they're being ridiculous here. So verse 32, afterward, the, women also, the woman also died. Verse 33, in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Verse 36, For they cannot die anymore because they're equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush. Okay, now he's going to prove that the resurrection is a reality. So he's, he's basically switching And he's saying, okay, first point, you're just trying to trap me and you're stupid, right? He's like, that's that's not what the resurrection's about. So again, just sidebar, my wife and I love each other a lot. So we've talked about this, like, does that mean we won't even know each other in heaven? I don't think that's really what he's saying. Again, remember, the the ancient view of marriage was was having kids. That was the central meaning of it. It wasn't everything, but that was kind of the central focus. And he's like, yeah, you're you're not going to have kids in heaven. (laughs) Like, that's his main point. He's like, it's different. It's, it's better. And so I think everything I've seen about the New Testament, this is not real clear. I think everything I've seen in the New Testament is we will know each other. It's not like we're not going to know each other and have no relationship anymore. It's just going to be so much better than anything we've ever enjoyed in this world. And that's, that's really what the resurrection is about. The, the way the New Testament phrases it, it's more than we can ask or imagine, right? And so the New Testament and the Old Testament teaches that heaven is a, is a new creation, there's still physicality. He's, he's not saying you're just going to float around like angels and care bears and there will be no physicality at all, right? Like that's not what he's saying. He's just saying it's going to be so much better than the world we know now. So much better. You're, you're not going to miss it. You're gonna, not going to miss out on these things. And then he goes on to, to try to prove from the books of Moses. So they still honored the books of Moses and they just threw out 
all the other books of the Old Testament, the Sadducees. So he's like, all right, even Moses proves this. Verse 37, the dead are raised, even Moses showed. In the passage about the bush, the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3 and 4, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Who are those guys to Moses? They were dead and in the past. Verse 38, now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. So two cases where they're trying to trap him. Conservatives are trying to trap him. The liberals are trying to trap him. Two different ways. He swats away. He's like, uh, well, I, know, I understand the Bible better than you, obviously. And he, he deals with the issue, but he, he brings it back to the heart issue. He's like, but, but do you get it? Like, there's, there's more important things here. Are you going to honor who God is? Or are you just going to come up with excuses to run away from his word? Um, I think it's really helpful for us to remember that Jesus cannot be trapped. And that gives us a great confidence in Jesus. That gives us the confidence that we can run to him, right? Like if you do find a thing in scripture that you're confused about or whatever, like you can take that to Jesus. You, you can study more. You can go back to the scriptures. Jesus cannot be trapped. And so we don't have to feel trapped ourselves. On the other side of this, that means that, that we can defend our faith and defend the scriptures because Jesus cannot be trapped, right? So this is kind of a tricky argument, but it's like, I have confidence to try to debate with people that the scriptures are trustworthy and Jesus is trustworthy because I see the absolute confidence of Jesus. Do you follow that? It's not my confidence in me. I've been studying the Bible for 33 years and I am going to keep studying it, and I want to know more answers. But the reality and lordship of Christ doesn't depend on me having all the answers. Does that make sense? Like any of us can give answers to who Jesus is because we're pointing to Jesus. One of my favorite illustrations of this is by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He talks about the defense of the word, the scriptures itself, but also the defense of Jesus. We can get caught up in these side arguments of trying to defend Scripture and trying to defend Jesus. And Spurgeon said it this way. He said, uh, you wouldn't try to defend a lion. If you were trying to defend a lion, that'd be silly. You would just let the lion out of its cage, right? I grabbed a picture of a lion in a cage. We should see the Scripture and really Jesus himself as the lion, the lion of Judah. Like we, we don't have to defend him right? Like we can just hand people over to him. Like, all right, well, here's the scripture. Deal with the scripture. This is what Jesus said. What do you think about that? In a very practical sense, when I've been debating with people about what they think about Jesus and what they think about the scripture and how reliable it is, I really like to encourage people, and I would encourage you to try this as well. Like, what if you just read one of the gospels? What if you just tried to deal with Jesus in his own words? Sure, sure. I know your college professor said you can't trust him, right? I know your college professor was a Sadducee that didn't believe in the scripture, but, but what if you just pretended that it was reliable? What if you just read the scripture yourself and just, and just let the lion do business with you? Like, what does he have to say? And that, I would encourage you to, to lead people that way. Should we understand what we believe and why we believe? Yes. Like I said, I've been studying it for 33 years now. I'm going to keep studying it. Hopefully I'll have another 50 years under my belt before I die, but I'm still not going to know everything. Really, my goal is to, to point people to Jesus, to point people to his word directly. So Jesus can't be trapped, so we don't have to worry about being trapped. Okay, second point, Jesus is more than a human king. 
Jesus is more than a human king. It's a really important, important point. Um, he's going to pull out this text, Psalm 110. And what I want to show you is he's, he's inviting them to study it more. So I'm going to try to give you some, some summaries of some important doctrines here, but I want you to be invited to study it more too. That's what Jesus is doing in the text. Jesus actually doesn't really give uh, any summaries here. He just kind of like shows this puzzle. He's going to be like, Psalm 110, what are you going to do about it? I mean, that's basically what, what Jesus is going to do here in this text. So this is one of the most important proofs for the Trinity doctrine in Scripture. But Jesus doesn't go into that. He doesn't teach all the doctrines about that. He's just like, Psalm 110. There you go. What do you think, right? So Jesus is more than a human king. Chapter 20, verse 41. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? That's the question. How can you say that the Christ is David's son? Everybody knew that the Christ, Messiah, the greatest king of all kings would be a descendant of David. That's what all the prophecies say, right? And Jesus is like, but have you thought this through? Maybe he's more than that. Look at verse uh, 42. For David himself says in the book of Psalms, this is Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, this is Yahweh, the, the personal name of God says to my Lord, Master, sit at my right hand. Get on the throne with me. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 44. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? This is interesting. Jesus is not saying he's not his son. Jesus is saying there's something more going on here. Jesus is like, what do you make of this? Have you read Psalm 110? Have you dealt with the issues at play in this psalm? He's inviting them in to further study. And Jesus is more than a human king. I think it's really helpful when we think about these doctrines, specifically the doctrine of the Trinity, that we start off with what the scripture uh, unpacks about him. I think sometimes when we teach the doctrine of the Trinity, it's like saying, uh, we're going to talk about communication and we're going to start with the iPhone and then work our way backwards to the telegraph. And it's, it's kind of disorienting, right? Like it's, it'd probably be better to explain it like, here's the telegraph and they figured out how to make these clicking noises that went across wires, right? And then they got more advanced from there. And when we start with the scriptures, we have the human king. We have the son of David. But there are all these little mysterious hints that he's something more. He's not just a human king. But it starts with the human king. In Western civilization, we often start on the other end of that. We're like, Jesus is God. We all know that, right? Well, look at the councils. Look at the creeds. I think those councils and creeds are correct. But we're working backwards, Right? I think it's really helpful to start where Scripture starts. He's the Messiah, the, the human king, the son of David we've been looking for. And yet he points to this and it's like, have you read Psalm 110? Like, have you thought about Daniel chapter 7? Have you looked into all these other Scriptures? Are you aware of all the promises in the Old Testament that says that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is going to come back in person? Have, have you pondered this at all? He's inviting us to study, to ponder, to be amazed something you have to take hold of for yourself. It's not something you can just be handed like, here's the official doctrine, believe it, don't talk about it, see you later. Um, we have to study it, we have to understand it. So here, I think it's helpful to think about even specifically the idea of the sharing of the throne. Jesus, the Son of God, shares the throne with the Father. And so I grabbed a picture of a Korean throne 
because I thought this one was helpful. A lot of thrones are actually more of a platform than a chair. I think in our kind of way we read that language, we just think throne means fancy chair, right? Uh, in a lot of ancient dynasties, throne was a platform, sometimes with multiple chairs. And so what's the line here being discussed when Yahweh says he's going to put the Messiah on the throne with him at his right hand? What, what's going on here? It's not just like, oh, they're going to scooch in on a chair together, right? Like, it's the platform of godhood. So the way the Nicene Creed describes this and the way theologians think about this is that we're all creatures, right? We're created, and then there's a creator. And Jesus is on that platform with God the Father. The Holy Spirit is on that platform with God the Father. That's the line, right? And this is reinforced in Hebrews 1 and in John 1 and uh, in Colossians 1. So we see this clarified in all these places. He's more than a human king. He's sharing the throne with God himself. Uh, that throne, I'm going to try to pronounce this. I asked if we had any Korean folks to help me with this. I think it's called the Iyojua, Iyojua throne in Korea. But it's a platform. And the picture is in the Old Testament, and this is said in a lot of different ways in the Old Testament. Daniel 7 is another important text about this that Jesus is going to come back to at his final court appearance before he's sentenced to death. He's going to combine the language of Psalm 110 and Daniel 7 and say, that's me. I'm that more than a human king that was prophesied about in the Old Testament. And they're going to be like, what more, what more can be heard now? He is blasphemous. He's making himself equal with God. So Jesus is more than a human king. I would also encourage you to go back to Psalm 110, just like Jesus is inviting them to go back to Psalm 110 and see what is the rest of the stuff that's being taught there. I preached on it way back in 2014. Um, I know it sounds silly to recommend my own sermons, but I think it was pretty good. I think I did an okay job. Uh, the name of the sermon was All of the Above. All of the Above, right? Because the question is, is, is he king or is he priest? And the answer is, he's all of the above. And that's what Psalm 110 is, is teaching. He's both king, the king that shares the throne with God, and he's a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. There's all kind of supernatural, crazy stuff going on in Psalm 110. So here's Jesus just going, have, have you looked at it? Like, like have, you, have you read it? Or are you just listening to what your college professor said about me? Are you just listening to what YouTube says about me? Or, or have you read the book yourself? That's the invitation that Jesus gives us. He has an eternal priesthood, and he's an eternal king that shares the throne with God himself. So Jesus is more than a human king, so we can trust him, right? We can trust him with our lives. We don't have to trust all these other false saviors and functional saviors we've been relying on. We can trust this human king. But because he's more than a human king, we should also be amazed by him, right? We, we worship him. We're in, in awe of him and his glory. That's a part of our relationship with him. But also, finally, we should ponder him. And that's really the invitation that, that Jesus is making here. He's like, I'm, I'm more than you thought. I'm more than you thought. And you could spend a lifetime figuring out who I am. And there will always be more for you. So a few suggestions and we'll move on. Uh, one is understand basic theology. I think we're kind of in a post-theological age. There's a lot of uh, theologians that are doing like surveys of, of the population of Christians in America. And bad news, we're getting stupider and stupider, okay? So we know less theology than we've ever known before as Christian people. 
Uh, so a kind of summary of theology that I recommend, it's real simple, good introduction, uh, is Basic Beliefs by Wayne Grudem and his son Elliot Grudem. Um, it's just kind of a survey of basic doctrine. It's a good place to start if you're kind of unfamiliar with these you know, pegs where to hang your hat on basic theology. It's a really helpful place to start. The Facts of Theology and Who Jesus Is. There's another book about the Trinity specifically called Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. That one's really helpful because it shows us that the reality of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is actually coinciding with this reality of the way that we know him as one who loves us, who delights in us by grace. And so it's this beautiful merging of doctrine with God's grace and his kindness to us. So it's done really well in a devotional way there, Delighting in the Trinity by Reeves. Uh, and then finally, one thing that my wife and I have been studying just the last couple of years is the Bible Project. They do these videos online. They have a podcast, just like a behind-the-scenes podcast from 2018 on just the identity of God. It's just God. That's the name of the podcast from that session. They have about 22 different lectures, again, of building this theology of what, what's the background for the identity of Jesus from the Old Testament coming into the New Testament. It helps put all that stuff together if you want to go deeper. All right, third point. Jesus sets the standards. Jesus sets the standards. He's the Lord, and part of that is he sets the standards. So we'll see this in 20, verse 45 through 21, 4. So again, back to the two stories saying the same thing. These are shorter stories, but they're both going to show us that he sets the standards of what's right and wrong, of what true generosity is, what true, excuse me, what true worship is. So chapter 20, verse 45. In the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. He's saying beware, beware. Uh, we're in a uh, deconstruction age, anti-religion age, and that can be scary for those of us that love Jesus and are part of this thing called the church. Uh, but Jesus tells us to beware of bad religious leaders. And so we need, to, we need to hold on to that, right? Like we don't go, want to go all the way to deconstruction and throw out organized church altogether and throw out religious leaders altogether, right? Like I'm a religious leader. I like Hebrews 13. It says, obey your leaders. I love that one, right? But we have to balance that with this. It's like, beware religious leaders. Jesus is inviting you to hold me and, and all religious leaders accountable and to not partake in corruption when we're going down that road. Of like, you know what, I'm really, I'm really more in, about like having a reputation and, and looking good and, and making long prayers and sounding fancy while on the side I'm, a, I'm oppressing the poor. This widow I'm supposed to care for, I'm actually stealing her property because, you know, it's, she's going to have to sell now. Things are really bad. I can get a good deal on this house. That's what was happening with the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They were the religious leaders, and they were corrupt. And Jesus is like, y'all are going to get the boot. So Christian people, what that means for you, if God calls you to another church, is, is you hold religious leaders accountable. It doesn't mean blind obedience, and it doesn't mean giving up on the institution of the church altogether. It's like, it's your job to make the church better. It's your job. You don't get to just be like, ah, forget it. It's all corrupt. Yeah, there's a lot of corruption. It's fascinating to read Paul's advice to the elders, to the religious leaders of the early church, 
in Acts chapter 20. The Ephesian elders. He had spent the most time with these guys. And in Acts chapter 20, they meet again after some time apart. And they are weeping together because they love each other so much. They are so close to each other. And he's giving them final instructions. And one of the final instructions he gives to them is he's like, oh yeah, by the way, my best friends, I love you so much, future leaders of the church, be careful because some of you are going to become wolves. You're like, what? When we first planted this church, one of my greatest fears is that we would have a bad leader or two. Somewhere along the line, I was encouraged to read that passage. It's like, oh yeah, we're going to. Like if, if Paul can't prevent bad leaders from popping up, I certainly can't prevent bad leaders from popping up. What we're commanded to do is to deal with it when it happens. And you're a part of that. Members of the body of Christ are a part of that. You, you see the corruption, you're like, that, that's not right. And, and you go to that person and you say, what's happening here? And why, why, why'd you say that? Why'd you do that? What's going on? You go to their leaders, you, you demand accountability. And Christianity is, is the leaders and the body of Christ working together. It's not just the leaders and they get to do whatever they say and they're corrupt. No, you, you challenge them. And Jesus says, beware, beware of this. Now it's interesting, he brings up the devouring the widow's houses and now he's gonna turn. Very next thing, he's gonna turn to widows. And he's like, these leaders are terrible. Don't follow them. And then he's gonna turn to a widow and say, follow her. And now we have to reset the stage that <clears throat> in the ancient culture, they thought the rich, important people were blessed by God. And they thought the poor, broken people who'd had loved ones die were abandoned by God. And Jesus is flipping that upside down. He's like, no, that's not the story at all. So let's look at chapter 21, one through four. This will be the last little section we look at. Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. He's noticing like, oh, they're the rich people and they're showing off. This, this is talked about in other places where Jesus, uh, he, he talks about how corrupt the religious leaders are, how they make a show of it when they give, right? So he's watching the rich give and then he's seeing this widow give just this tiny little copper coins. I actually have one of these. I was telling you, one of our members collects these ancient coins. He gave me a widow's mite, a little tiny penny. It's so small, you can't see it. It's like a little plastic box with the, with the little penny inside of it. I can show afterwards if you want to see it. She put in two little tiny copper coins and he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. This is the upside down kingdom. It's not about how rich you are or your fancy long robes or your important prayers or how you show off when you give or what a nice car you drive or what a nice house you have. It's about your heart. It's about your submission to the Lordship of Christ. She's truly put in more than all of them. Verse four, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. She gave everything. And so the contrast here, by the way, this is not an application that if you can't feed your family, you should give more money to the church. That's not what this is teaching, okay? Feed your family. All right, that's the side. He's saying this is a contrast of two hearts. This is a contrast of two hearts. Uh, one heart is all about showing off and getting attention. And one heart is a heart of devotion. Giving whatever your meager offering is in submission and worship to God. Throughout the New Testament, the New Testament says, we give 
because we believe that Jesus gave to us. And that's going to continue to be a drumbeat for us at this church. We're going to say, yeah, we want you to financially partner with us. We want you to give to the church because your heart is in it, right? Because you want more people to know about Jesus. That's the issue. And you want that because you know Jesus and you love him. And it would break your heart if more people didn't know him. And so Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, that because of all the riches we've been given in Christ, because of his, his love and his grace for us, that's why we want to give to others. That's why we would want to help the poor. That's why we would want to prop up missionaries and Bible teaching is because Jesus has loved us first. And so we need to have that same attitude. This is like the attitude of the widow where she might only have this little copper penny to give, but Jesus is like, man, that's true giving. That's true giving right there. Giving out of like, I don't, I don't know how I'm going to make ends meet, but I'm giving because I want others to know the glory of God. I found a picture online of a plaque. Um, it says, building the new school, Jane Doe, $10,000. It's a fake plaque for the sake of illustration. But the idea is we can give to be honored, right? Or we can give because we have a heart in submission to God. W- which one will it be? And we have to be careful, right? Because there's a school of thought called the prosperity gospel where it, it just hammers the, the giving so you can get more plaques with God, right? It's like, if you give more, God will love you more. If you give more, God will bless you more. And, and we would say, yeah, that's distorted. And Jesus is pointing that out with the, the religious leaders of his day. But we, ha- we need to be careful not to go too far because like Jesus does say there is blessing. There is reward in giving. So there's just a common sense reward in giving, but that, that shouldn't be the main goal, Right? We're not giving just for that reward. We're giving because we believe Jesus has given to us. So is there, is there a reward? Yeah, there's spiritual reward. There's blessings. Like God, God likes to bless us. Uh, he likes to bless giving. That's how he's wired the universe, right? There's all, all kinds of verses about that. That's, that's why the health and wealth gospel can twist it because there's a lot of material there. It says things like that. We just have to hold on to uh, where is giving initiated? It's initiated in our hearts because Jesus has loved us first. That, that's where it starts, and we have to hold on to that. So Jesus sets the standards of what generosity really is. Jesus sets the standards of what giving should really be. Jesus sets the standards of what it looks like for us to honor people uh, with our opportunities, with our influence, with our material blessings. We'll wrap up here. Conclusion, Jesus is Lord. That's the big idea, right? Jesus is Lord. He's coming into the city. He's establishing his kingship. He's establishing that he's in charge. He's establishing that he is Lord. One of the most common ways that the Old Testament is used in the Old Testament uh, that's echoed in the New Testament when it's quoted is these phrases about the lordship of God from the Old Testament. So his personal name, Yahweh, was translated as Lord. They wouldn't even say it out loud. And so their Greek translations would say, Lord. Uh, many of their other translations, they would read it out loud as Lord. And so notice in the New Testament, again and again, we're told Jesus. Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. And again, the New Testament again and again will say, how do we know for sure? His resurrection. His resurrection is what proved it. Did, did he claim it? Yeah, he's, he's claiming it here before he died. But his death and resurrection is what, is what brought that to pass in our life. I told you my son grew up and he moved beyond 10-year-old uh, immaturity, right? Being in charge. 
demanding that his sisters wake up when they didn't want to. Um, it was interesting, as a, as a young man, he's a musician, he, he wrote a song called Wake Up. Um, it was an Easter song. And it was about the call of the resurrection. This is a theme in the New Testament that, that Jesus is inviting us to wake up in him. That because of his death on the cross, our sins are paid for and we're free. And because of his resurrection, we can wake up to new life in the resurrection with him, just as Jesus was teaching about earlier in this passage. So I want you to think about it this way. Now, Jesus is really excited to be in charge, but he's Lord and a Lord of grace. So he's saying, wake up, wake up, I'm in charge. Wake up to new life through my death and resurrection. Follow, follow me. I'm going to wipe every tear from your eyes. There'll be no more crying and no more pain in me. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us and invite us into relationship with you through Christ. We thank you that we can wake up to new life by your resurrection. Um, help us to see the truth of this. Help us to, to walk with you in obedience. Help us to live supernaturally by your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.